Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 24. We talked to Brian Munzeminer about web performance optimization, possibilities of remote app, why I don't teach solid, and artisanal Bitcoin mining with pencil and paper. Hey, Carl, what's new with you this week? Uh, not a whole lot new with me. I'm still getting ready for my talk uh, this coming weekend at the Twin Cities Code Camp. So I'm pretty excited about that. Okay. What well, is that uh, all weekend? It's uh, Saturday at the okay. at the University of Minnesota. So okay. looking uh, forward to that, talking to people about Cortana and Windows Phone. Okay. I'm excited about that. So we have a very special guest today. We have Brian Munzenmeyer. So why don't you give us a little bit of your background? Sure. Thank you. Uh, thanks uh, for having me on. And uh, before I forget, uh, Carl, you're going to have to tell me why um, Cortana, Cortana doesn't have the uh, the Halo um, actual voice actress um, from what I can They tell. do. Is it her? That yeah. is her. It is. I forgot mm-hmm. her last name, but it is Jen. Oh, gosh. The commercials are, or maybe it's just been too long since I've played. It, it doesn't sound like her. So uh, they have a lot of the stuff that's that's her voice directly recorded, okay. and she has influenced the um, the generated voices as well. Cool. So, um they pull her up every now and then to record new content. Sure. So yeah, if you ask her to tell you a joke or something like that, she'll, she'll give you the, a completely re- uh, pre-recorded uh-huh. answer as well as like, sing me a song. It's her singing. Yep. Nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, maybe, maybe they need a commercial where um, she's doing some live action or something that, that, that <laughs> it'll, it'll bring a more of a bell for me. But anyways, so Jason, I didn't have to answer <laughs> your question at all. Web developer, um, software developer in um, Northeast Wisconsin, just like you guys. And, um, I'm a little younger than uh, Carl, I'll say, but um, we went to school together, and uh, that's where we kind of hit it off um, in class. Um, he won't uh, he won't admit it, but I have a picture of him sleeping. So. <laughs> I forgot about that. You're holding it <laughs> ransom, I believe. It's not that I won't admit it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. We'll post, we'll post a, a link to that in the show perfect, notes. Perfect, perfect. Um, <laughs> but uh, one way or another, actually, uh, Carl and I both found our way to Orion uh, Energy Systems, which, uh, uh, you know, was a... Uh, quite a watershed moment i guess for us um really a amazing place to to learn and and become more of a professional so it was just a great place to start i mean hands down no doubt about it mm-hmm. uh kind of a little incubator i'd say and um never really looked back since or, or maybe uh maybe constantly look back i guess you could say because um I've often found myself really comparing a lot of life experiences or professional experiences to time at, at Orion. And, you know, we really, uh, I think, you know, found some new ground um, for us and, and we're really firing in all cylinders for a while. So when I was there, um, I worked on the, the product side with Intellite, um, uh, a lighting system that, you know, helps uh, control uh, lighting based on, um, you know, motion, uh, ambient light levels or, or, um, a schedule, and we had the pretty sweet Azure reporting solution as well. Um, I wrote the front-end interface um, for a responsive web app for that, and working with a couple other people, and um, we really just, uh, I think, were, were ahead of our time. I mean, it was, it was fun stuff, bleeding edge, cut ourselves sometimes, I suppose, but uh, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it, it, was, it was so much fun, and we learned, uh, at least I learned so much, uh, um, I know uh, Orion sent me to uh, an event apart, um, which is a pretty stand-up uh, web design and development um, conference. Uh, I went to Atlanta, and then I've also gone to Seattle, and um, that's really just kind of lit my fire in terms of uh, and, and and inspired me to be try to be a better um, web developer and 
uh, make make good experiences. So been hopping around, um, but news for me is uh, I uh, just finished my first week of, of new employment back uh, back in uh, hometown. So uh, that was pretty pretty exciting and a, a great great um, kind of coming home of uh, back to my roots. Cool. Yeah, and I know whenever you went to those uh, conferences. I know you, uh, you always seem to come back as, as kind of a different person. And that was, you were really the first one that I heard, uh, things like responsive design. I remember you came back, you were all excited about that. And, and it was neat because it's, instead of just reading about it, you were like, yeah, here's what it looks like. Here's how can we can incorporate it into our own products. And, uh, that was, that was just a really neat, uh, um, process to go through and, and you really built some really cool things and kind of changed the way I look at uh, user interface design. Those were uh, pretty neat times. And and, and another thing, uh, I, I know Brian isn't going to say this himself, but uh, on top of being a stand-up developer, he also is like one of the few people that can also handle design on his own too. Um, you know, there's there's only a handful of people that I, I personally know of that can do both equally well. And I would say Brian is definitely one of them. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate that. Um, that's uh, nice of you to say. It, it is true, though. Um, uh, going to a conference and, and uh, really being immersed in, I guess, amongst more like-minded individuals is an incredibly important experience, I think, especially for a developer um, or maybe any professional when they're kind of in their formative years, um, you know, in their career. Um, I I really didn't have much to, I, I didn't know, even know what to expect, um, you know, going there. I can I can still remember, you know, like signing up for Twitter uh, at the conference, just so I could follow these people that I was hearing and meet and meeting and, and uh, you know interfacing with, and um, it it just it, it really kind of opens your eyes to how much opportunity there is to to network and and to constantly learn. That's uh, that's probably one of the things that I've taken away most is still is that you're never done. You know, you just aren't, and uh, I think that is scary to a lot of people. Um, you know, it's maybe in more of an enterprise space, I guess, or, um, you know, certain segments where um, they have a lot of legacy code or, or people are, you know, can start to stagnate, I suppose. But um, if you if you stay hungry, you can really keep learning and, and meet some neat, neat people. I met uh, I met Ethan Marcotte, um, the, you know, the founder, I guess, inventor of responsive design. Um, my my father had totally randomly bought me the book. Because he knew I was going to Atlanta, um, and mm-hmm. he bought it for me. I mean, it was just probably the I don't know. The cover was yellow, and he I, I don't know, but somehow <laughs> uh, he got it for me, and I brought it there, and, and uh, Ethan signed it, and I got to talk to him about a lot of neat stuff. Um, I, I I got the chance to talk to him too um, the following year, I suppose, uh, in Seattle, and we had beers, and uh, I mean, it's it's strange to think how far. Um, Really, the the concept has moved um, in, in such short time. Um, when I went to that uh, uh, an event apart, that was probably a year after um, he'd really coined the phrase, and we started moving with it. But it, it's it's really gone way beyond the three tenets of responsive design, and and uh, started a lot of good conversations about just having more performant web experiences. I think um, you know it's. It spawned a lot of discussion on you know how best should we be optimizing and delivering um, just rich media and images. And um, it, it, every once in a while, you get those kind of skies falling articles about you know responsive design is bad for performance and all the stuff. But it, it's just it's really kind of putting a new lens on on a lot of our current problems, and and it's it's moved a lot. So it's exciting to see and be a part of. 
Yeah, at the risk of making this the the longest intro ever, I want to <laughs> piggyback on a comment you made about going to conferences. And I I actually read a, a book recently. I guess read is is kind of a bad term because it it's um, um I can't remember. There's there's two books in the series. Have you seen this uh, concept of sketch noting? Yeah. There's like a sketch note handbook. So I bought I, whichever. I can't remember which one is the first one, but I I bought the first one and I've been uh, taking a look at that. And what's interesting about it is is you're kind of doodling and and drawing and it's a combination of drawing and writing all these different concepts as you're listening to like a presentation at a conference. And it brings up a couple interesting points. First of all, there there's there's something about being at a conference, even if you can even if it's streamed online and you can watch it, you know, at yeah. home. Um, if even if we just pretend like there was a conference and you were the only attendee, it's still different than sitting at home, right? Because you were there and the other person, you know, the person who's presenting is there. And there's, there's just a, there's an, there's an ambiance that's, that's there that, that sort of changes things. And what's interesting about sketch noting is it's, it's about sort of paying attention, to all these different things, uh, sort of triggering, triggering your brain in just a little bit different right. way to, to take it all in and, and learn in a different way. And what I found, I'm, you know, I'm definitely no expert and I haven't even tried this at a conference yet, but what I found is it, it really does like, you know, it's like a, a 10x or an order of magnitude difference in, in how you retain and remember that information. And like you were saying, those experiences, you, you remember being there and learning those things. So, you know, just kind of picking up on that, how, how true that absolutely is. And even though it's the same information that you might be able to get from a different source. So are you ready to jump into the news? Rock on. Okay. So Carl, you found one here. What should a start smartwatch do? Good question. What should it do? Yeah. Um, this was a question that was proposed by Engadget to, uh, to their forums and, you know, piggybacking off of a few weeks ago when the iWatch or Apple watch announcement came out, um, we kind of were, were thinking like, what's the killer app for it? And mm-hmm. they kind of broke it down. Like not just what, sh- what, what, what are the good apps, but what should the features of a smartwatch even be? Um, and I think a, a few people kind of really nailed on what, you know, what it should have and what it shouldn't have. Um, one of the common things was, you know, you shouldn't be duplicating anything that your phone does. I mean, do, do you really need to be taking, you know, pictures from your from your wrist? I mean, that that's kind of gimmicky. But at the same time, there's some things that are, are hard to do. I mean, we brought it up um, like the heart rate sensors and other some of the other, you know, mm-hmm. you know, health and fitness things that really makes yeah a fitbit and and one of my things that i was actually gonna uh uh bring up is this week i decided to stop wearing my fitbit um it seems like every time that i really want the information um i've somehow forgotten to wear it that day um you know i'm not an incredibly fit person but i i do go running i do exercise or i'll do like you know uh community service things where i'm out and i'm walking all day and the ex- uh my example the other day was is yesterday um we went out and started uh popcorn sales for cub scouts and that involved our entire cub uh pack going out to everybody in our small town and you know going door to door and i probably put on you know quite a few miles forgot to bring my Fitbit. So I decided right then and there, <laughs> if I can't, if it's not going to be on me and it's not going to record the things that I'm interested in, it's not worth it anymore. And if I have something like this watch, that's, that's always paired. you you wear it differently and um, it's going to be on it on you when you need it. So kind of, you know, these companies, and I know Apple is really good about thinking these kinds of thing, things out. I mean, mm-hmm. you, it has to be something you want to wear and it has to have the things that you want and it has to just kind of just work. If it doesn't have all these things, I'm not going to go out and put my money on something like that anymore. 
So, so it sounds like the short answer is we still don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we don't know, but I think we're getting closer on figuring out what it should be doing. Yeah. And then people can start making this and integrating it better. Now, it'll be interesting to see if, you know, Apple really does nail it like they've hit off, you know, some of their previous products, but they've also had some, you know, ones that have sunk pretty well as, as well. So it's just because Apple's doing it isn't uh, a guarantee. Right, I agree. It's it's tough for me to really know uh, or, to, or to put my finger on if there were, were a killer app, I guess, for a smartwatch, because you, you, I think you said it right before, um, you have to want to wear it. And um there's, there are a few things that I feel like I am totally missing or, or I uh, am, uh, you know, at a loss for if I don't have with me. It'd be like my wedding ring and my wallet and, you know, increasingly my phone, right? But um, I, I don't think I would ever feel that way about a Fitbit or at least right now a smartwatch. You know, it's not one of those extensions of yourself um, yet. And, uh, you know, the mainstay of a watch is to tell the time and there's so many different ways to do that these days you know that they need to find something for sure um some kind of symbiotic relationship with the rest of you um for for it at least for me for it to be successful honestly i'm i'm kind of sick of talking about smartwatches. <laughs> like i'm just i'm just at this point now where i'm waiting you know if if developers have these these killer app ideas and i know we talked about this last week too people have these ideas you know just start executing like let's let's start to see this stuff until i start to see it i'm just i'm I, you know i'm i'm kind of over it i i was all excited about buying a smartwatch and at this point i'm like you know what not, no i'm not i'm not going to buy one until until there becomes that moment. And I think it's going to take a while until I see one. And I'm like, Oh, you know what? That, that looks like it's worth owning. And I don't, I just don't see when we're going to get there. Well, in that case, let's go on to our next news item. (laughs) That's a good idea. So what do you got here, Carl? Azure remote app, this rocks. Yep. So I, I was, I jumped early on the beta for remote app. I signed up for it as soon as I heard about it because it's really cool. Um, for those of you who who don't remember what it was, because we have talked about it in the past, it's a way to, um, have apps that are physically located somewhere else on a different machine. In this case, it's hosted in Azure. And as you need them, you stream through a remote desktop service, just the app uh, mm-hmm. to you locally. And um, I've been using this on and off for a few months now. And one of the biggest things is when when you're setting these um, the custom apps up to in Azure to actually deploy it, it gets kind of hairy, especially around the networking side, because... Um, you know, I'm not very strong in, in networking, or at least as strong as you know you really need to be to kind of do this off the top of your head. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happened is there's a, a, an article by Freak Burson. Um, he's a Microsoft MVP on remote desktop services. So this is right up his alley. He wrote a blog post, uh, how to get a remote app set up. And uh, I think that if anybody out there has MSDN credits and you know an hour or two to kill, um, you could really find some really interesting ways to use this. Um, yeah, the the performance of this is good too. I know we talked about that before. I mean, I first thing I did was I opened up PowerPoint and you know added like a gigantic image to it, and it it actually worked very well. Yeah, my problem personally with mine is I I've always had problems with those networking things because um I I forgot exactly what it is, but there is a, a a networking like a sitter I think it's called or cider um address format that it's mm, just yes a, yep that's you know something that I've never been formally taught and just hurts my brain a little bit well and there's more than one right there's all yeah, these different yeah. formats for for ip ranges and yeah it's it's you, it can be a little frustrating yeah and and you have to have a static ip where you where you are and that's the only thing that's that's hurting me right now is i don't know how to c- 
kind of get all of those steps quite in the same spot. It's not that I don't have that ability. It's just I haven't had enough time to sit down at once to figure this out. And now mm-hmm. that this article came out, I'm going to give this another shot because I do have some really good test cases you know, um, to check this out. You know, one of them is, hey, can I just put Visual Studio up there so I can have Visual oh, yeah. Studio with everything that I want up there? I'm sure we all want that, right? I mean, we have we have multiple devices and and I have, you know, Visual Studio installed on multiple devices, but they keep coming out with updates faster and faster. It's hard to keep things in sync, keep your source code in sync. So, yeah, being able to do that is great. I mean, I I was I was just thinking about how I, I, I'd like to be able to do more of this. And it's it's sort of what we did with virtualization, where you can segregate applications like I want. I want Visual Studio to be self-contained and I want um, like I have all these other things like, you know, I have a dedicated machine sitting in front of me right now just for our Skype calls, you know, for the podcast, because I want to take out I don't want all these other programs interfering. I, I was having uh, issues on my desktop with Skype and some other applications. And uh, and then on my desktop, I run this uh, video server surveillance application. And I'm actually considering buying, you know, like one of those 200, 250 dollar laptops just to run that software by itself. So any any of these ways that we can use virtualization and cloud computing to you know, sort of wrap these, these big applications that, that, um, maybe don't play nice with other things. If we can just wrap those things up and keep them separate, that's great. And then the ability to roam around, you know, if you're traveling or you're jumping, even just jumping on somebody else's computer and being, you know, if I could, if I was over at Carl's place and I was like, Oh, Carl, let me show you this application. And I have all these special extensions in visual studio. If I could just RDP into, you know, uh, into my visual studio instance and start using it. That's pretty killer. So there's a lot of possibilities with this for sure. Uh, the next one here, I thought this was kind of interesting. Did you take a look at this one, Carl? This mining Bitcoin with pencil and paper? Yeah, and I, I thought this was really cool. Um, what what this guy shows is um, you can actually go through the the process it takes to to figure out the you know what the the computer program that mines Bitcoin. You can do mm. that by hand on graph paper. Yeah, and it's just a it's a SHA two fifty six hashing algorithm. And what's interesting about it, I mean, I, I really like this because it sort of demystifies that whole process. Because right. you know, anytime you look up one of these processes, it's always let's say you go to Wikipedia, they they explain it in this sort of cryptic way that I never understand. And they're like, oh, here's some pseudocode. And even in the code, you're like sort of keeping track in your head. Um, but if you watch this, you start to see like, okay, this is really a series of of up you know of operations that you go through and the fact that you're using graph paper helps add the dimensions to it that you need to to simplify this so he's doing things like counting the number of bits per column you know from a whole bunch of different records and then he's also doing um um you know like adding them up and, and things like that it's pretty impressive so he was using this for bitcoin mining just to try it he's able to do uh he calculates 0.67 hashes per day <laughs> Yeah, and what he said it came down to is he said it was surprisingly easy to do that by hand because, like you said, it was just really Boolean addition. Mm-hmm. And he said one one round of SHA fifty six, you know, to get that done took sixteen minutes and forty five seconds. But you, in Bitcoin, you have to do that one hundred twenty eight times. So, which would come out to something he calculated one point four nine days. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's easy but slow. <laughs> a comment in uh, on Hacker News says something about them being all natural, artisanal, uh, artisanal hashes, handcrafted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, worth more. Oh wait, no. Um, <laughs> but I think you're right, Jason. It's kind of neat to um, see something that is already you know pretty abstracted. I mean, people don't really mess around with encryption unless they have to, right? Um, and hashing um, on a regular basis, at least in my world, and to see it kind of peeled back a little bit and, and brought back to um, the roots is, is neat. Mm-hmm. 
I thought I just thought that was pretty cool. Move on. Uh, next one here. Uh, why I don't teach solid. So I always I always click on these. You know, anytime I find somebody, you know, I'm I'm I've been pretty big on solid throughout my career. Um, the the principles from Robert C. Martin. He's got a whole book about it. And I really enjoyed the book. Uh, but I I like clicking on these and, and reading these articles that sort of completely disagree with how I've how I've been doing everything. So he goes through and he sort of explains solid. And uh, one of the things that, that he talks about in here, he's talking about how whenever he looks at one of these code bases, he sees a ton of interfaces and uh, it's really difficult to to navigate through it. And I've heard those those arguments before. I've heard, you know, hey, we, we're creating a ton of interfaces. Really, that's that's an issue, I would say, with the language. And, and it's valid. I mean, if the language has that that verbosity, I mean, that's the way it is. And then the other issue is being able to, you know, sort of navigate to the definition of the thing that you're, that you're looking at. And I think that's legitimate, but again, I, I think that's a, a tooling issue. I don't, um, you know, the fact that that visual studio go to definition doesn't take you to perhaps, you know, like the one implementation of that, I think is, is just sort of a, a shortcoming there. And I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, I don't know if you guys have seen any, I'm assuming there's tools to help with that. Have well, you guys seen e- even any? visual studio, uh, at least in 2013, it'll, it'll list out which, which one do you want to go to? Here's the seven you know, yeah. concrete implementations of that interface. But the, the main, main thing I got out of this is, you know, a lot of people just jump into using, you know, they hear about solid, they agree with it, they understand the benefits, and then they just blindly say, all of my code has to fit this hundred percent exactly all of the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's when you jump too far into it, you know, saying it has to be this everywhere is when you're going to get into those things that, well, yes, your code is all technically solid, but you're kind of missing the point. Yeah, right. and, 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 and one of the things where I've come across is um, I give a presentation that's something like windows phone overview or windows phone one Oh one. And the question I have, I've heard, gotten every single time i've given this presentation is can you uh put um an ioc container in windows phone and and to me it's kind of missing the point because a lot of times they're talking about like making something like a fart app or something i'm like do you really need an ioc container to make a (laughs) fart app i mean really i'm like yes you can have an ioc container first of all to answer your question but second of all is your app big enough to really need this i mean yes you know it's part of you know the things that you use when you jump full bore into solid, but sometimes um, I think some of these you need to learn when not to use right. as well. I think you're spot mm-hmm. on. I think um, w- really with any methodology or um, tool or mindset, I mean, you said it perfectly. I mean, you need to know when not to use it too. And not every situation warrants, um, you know, the best of breeds, you know, solution. Uh, it doesn't. Sometimes you just need something done fast. I mean, the, the only one it, of the principles of solid that I really tried to hold on to everywhere is the single responsibility principle. Mm-hmm. Other than that, the rest of them to me are negotiable upon, you know, whatever it is you're trying to do. Yep. A class should do one and only one yeah. thing. So, so the, the, uh, example that I've been using recently, I have this code base. It's the, uh, a manufacturing framework. It's a, a series of Azure samples for, for manufacturing that I have out in GitHub. And I always use this as, as my example of, of sort of how to implement solid. And, in you know, again, there are many, many classes in there where I just don't do it because there are, uh, I'm using some external dependencies where it would be a lot of work to create an interface for, you know, cause they don't give you an interface and I'd have to wrap it and, and use the adapter pattern and it would be a big, ugly mess. So I use it when it makes sense. And where I do use it, I have, 
you know, let's say I have a, a class that that moves data from point A to point B and there's, you know, a source that gets passed in and like a destination. Well, the way I have it set up with an IOC container is that the, um, you know, since the IOC container is creating my class that moves data from point A to point B, it automatically fulfills all my dependencies. So the constructor, like I just in my constructor to find what things I depend on. And what's nice about that is that if I have to add an additional dependency, I don't have to change any of my code. And that that's how when when I'm introducing somebody to this, I always say, let's show let me show you some of the benefits before we talk about, you know, what what you actually have to do to do this. So I go in and I say, look at this constructor. Now what will happen if I add this additional dependency? You know, will it compile? And I'm like, well, of course not. It's not going to compile. And I add the dependency, I compile it. It does compile and it runs perfectly. And it makes it so that whenever you're working on a particular class, it's really easy to add functionality because you can add that dependency, use that dependency throughout your code. It's also unit testable. You get all those types of advantages. So, you know, I think a lot of people, um, they get frustrated by some of these downsides and then they give it up. But, you know, again, I think a lot of these are language and tooling issues. You know, if you look at uh, JavaScript, for example, and you're doing, you know, the the single responsibility principle, and again, you're passing in those dependencies. Well, in JavaScript, it's a piece of cake. I mean, you already really don't have go to definition anyway. You're tooling, you know, maybe you have some tooling that does that. But in general, with JavaScript, the way I've seen people work, like you, you don't have that functionality anyway. And with JavaScript, you don't have to define an interface. You can just have two classes that, you know, happen to have the same interface and they can both be passed to the same thing. I believe that's uh, the essence of duct typing, right? Um, so the, uh, you know, again, with with a different language, all these things go away. So I don't think it's fair to, to um, you know, say all that solid is bad. I think it's okay to sort of make fun of people who say everything must be solid all the time, you know, kind of the, the point that you were making, Carl. But, um, you know, to say the opposite, I think it's just as bad. I think we can all sort of meet in the middle. Move on. Let's yeah. talk to Brian about performance optimization. So today we want to talk about web performance optimization. And I was excited to talk about this because I've I've done this in the past. I think I actually took it too far at one point. Uh, so I'm definitely excited to, to talk about some of these things. So let's, you know, have a little bit of a discussion here. So, Brian, do you want to give us a little bit of a background on, you know, what what entails uh, or what what is what makes up web performance optimization? Sure, sure. I was trying to come up with a definition <laughs> prior to this, um, <laughs> but it, I don't think there really is one, uh, one definition, of course. Um, but really, how I would summarize the th- the, the practice is to consider performance uh, during all aspects and, and, and stages of development. It, it cannot be an afterthought. And um, it, it really should be part of even your initial design or, or, or expectation exchange. You know, uh, a great example from um, Tim Cadleck, uh, he's an independent web developer, uh, also from Wisconsin, is uh, the idea of setting a performance budget, um, you know, early on in design. And um, that setting something like, you know, it's really just a, a, a key performance metric. Um, would be something like, hey, you know, everything needs to load in two seconds at at, at the latest, or even have like a um, a limit to the you know total file size of of your first initial hit. Um, that's that's all great um, because then what it does is it it it's a constraint that allows you to um, prioritize decisions you know all down the line. So um, by by you know measuring something, you can you can control it and uh, 
you know, you guys have seen the the wave of you know parallax uh, sites. I'm sure um, you know mm-hmm. throughout the uh, past maybe year or two. And uh, while they're they might be gorgeous, um, you know, they're, they're, sometimes they're like 20 meg. Uh, lately, I've seen some where um, people will have like a, a background video playing like as the background of the site, yep. you know, and, and I guess that's fancy. Um, and, and maybe it, it, uh, performs some sort of function, uh, you know, part of their message, but you have to wonder, is that really the kind of, uh, kind of experience you want to be crafting for users that you, you don't necessarily know anything about. So to roundabout tell you, I guess, um, you know, web performance optimization, I guess, is really just the practice of, of, uh, being mindful of what you're what you're doing as you're creating something the the impetus for um you know you and i talking really was an article i wrote um, for crunchy owl where um that one was was itself kind of based off of a a different article um called uh responsive design bloat Uh, i think that was by dave rupert and um if i kill that i apologize to dave but uh Anyways, um, really, you know, he was trying to respond to critics who say that responsive design is is inherently slow versus like an MDOT site. And uh, he really debunked that just by, um, t- you know, rolling up his sleeves and looking at uh, what he was doing. And uh, in, in, uh, in the act of doing that, he was able to um, improve performance on his site and show that it wasn't anything inherent in responsive design. It was more the choices he made along the way. So yeah, I want a um, you know a web font. Yeah, I want some rich media. Um, you know, some nice images. But when you're doing that, you're incurring costs to your users, and um, you need to just be mindful of that and make sure you're um, doing every single thing you can to to be delivering the proper message. Um, you know, as fast as possible. Yeah, those sites that show the the giant video. They yeah. work great on my 100 meg connection at home yeah. and they don't work that great on the go-go in-flight at the five you know, kilobytes per second. Right, right. I, I think that's one of the great things that Brian kind of talked around at least a little bit is, you know, when, when you're when you're preparing for performance up front and you, you kind of have to understand why are you measuring performance? If, if this is something that you really only care about desktop people who have 100 meg connections, um, you might not, you know, have the same considerations. Whereas if you're you know, looking at somebody that's running it, you know, a two year old, uh, Android device on a 2g connection, yeah, you're, you're going to make different choices depending upon what you've defined as your audience and the things that you care about as well. So you do kind of have to put a little bit of thought into, into your user and your user scenarios as well, which I think for somebody who's not used to making those kinds of decisions or, or, or thoughts, um, you know, that's something they might want to grab some analytics about as well. Yeah, and, and I, I agree. But it, it's also tough, though, to even attempt to define, um, you know, it's one thing to define your users well, which you can, um, I think, but to understand the various contexts to which they might, uh, you know, be, be interfacing with your site, that's near impossible. I mean, Jason, you travel, Carl, you travel occasionally, um, too, you know, and so you might be tethered to your phone. You might be, you know, on a, mm-hmm. on a spotty Wi-Fi, but you're still a high-powered developer who has, you know, certain expectations of how things should work. And it's it, it's it's so hard to, you know, the more assumptions you make, the the higher you kind of climb that uh, high horse. And um, I've seen a lot of people state that, uh, you know, really the fact that we're, you know, talking together, you know, we're the exception. We're not the rule. Uh, you know, we're. Uh, 
the vast majority of people um, don't really think about this kind of stuff. They, you know, they, they just expect the the sites they go to and the apps they go to to work and to be and to mm-hmm. perform it. You know, so um, really, uh, you know, we're t- we're often testing under really uh, sublime te- you know uh, conditions, and uh, that's that's unfair too. So uh, you know, one of the great great things you can do, of course, is to test in an actual device. Um, that's a little bit outside of performance optimization, but um, you just need to do that. Uh, there's tool that you can throttle your, your network, you know, go, go to Starbucks, do whatever you need to be testing in real life. So what is your workflow? You know, what are the things that you do when you're looking at the performance of, you know, whatever you're working on at the moment? Sure, sure. Um, well, like I said, one of the most important things to do is to measure it. Um, it goes without saying, but you need to you need to understand where you are if you want to try and improve. So if you have that budget, or if you have some semblance of where you are now, um, you can you know determine if that is acceptable or not. Um, I did that um, with my Crunchyroll analysis, uh, where um, you know I, I looked at uh, the Chrome network traffic. I looked at um, there's a great tool called uh, WebPageTest.org. I believe it is. Um, hopefully, I didn't butcher that either. But um, they have uh, an API, or you can go right on their site and uh, audit audit your site under um, a, a number of different conditions, browsers, um, you know, connection speeds, uh, things like that, and, and it'll tell you, um, you know, different performance characteristics, uh, neat things like uh, time to the um, you know first load, um, the first byte. Um, how long it took to really um, paint the entire picture for everyone? Uh, it's 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 pretty neat. But um, once you have that in mind, then you can actually go through um, and start making decisions in terms of you know what what do you and don't you want to include. So um, you know if you if you really want a couple icon fonts, I mean there's a bunch of beautiful ones now. Um, if you go on Adobe Edge um, or you know Google Fonts, there's just there's, they're great. They're all over the place, so you can purchase one as well. Um, but really, that's you're you're incurring a cost, and uh, you have to ask yourself if that's necessary or not. If it makes or breaks your design, um, but uh, really, the first thing I do is, is, is measure it. Um, from there, then uh, most of my current uh, workflow is uh, driven by Grunt, um, which I'm sure you guys are aware of. So there's, there's kind of the, the gulp. Um, newer, newer, newer way of doing it, but uh, there's so many great, great tools out there for Grunt that um, there's really no excuse not to um, be hooking up some uh, some performance uh, tooling into your workflow. It doesn't have to be an afterthought to you know manually um, compress all your images or uh, concatenate all your files. Uh, you can do set up a, a pretty good Grunt file that can be uh, very easily um, concatenated all your JavaScript, minifying everything along the way, um, optimizing images, uh, one, uh, and you know, really kind of inlining stuff uh, where you need to. One really, really neat thing that um, I was playing with uh, yesterday, actually, is uh, something that I think you, all three of us, had joked about um, a couple of years ago, and maybe they were just ahead of their time. But uh, there's there's that concept of kind of inlining the CSS um, for any above the fold content. I don't know if you guys have uh, heard of that, but really, you know, that allows you to um, to get to a, a more uh, rendered state for a user sooner. And uh, now the tooling, I think, has kind of caught up to that concept. I think we were, we were making fun of Facebook or, or Google or something for doing that. We were looking at their source code way back when, and it just, it just looked <laughs> goofy, you know? It, 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 
it, yeah. it goes against every single thing that you you were, you forgot about after you're learning it in school. Yeah, I think that was actually passed in the law. So you know, if you do that, it's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so now there's there's a number of different tools that even a grunt uh, one called Grunt uh, or it's called Penthouse that um, will take um, you know your your code um, and, and whatever viewports you might want. Um, to, to test against and it'll actually tell you what your critical above the fold uh, CSS is and then from there you can very easily inline it right into your, your HTML um, so it's you know I don't want to focus too much on one thing but uh, there's really just kind of a whole gamut of, of uh, opportunities um, one thing that uh, is easy to, to forget uh, depending on your hosting uh, environment too is uh, things like uh, gzip and, and caching right Um like in, in my particular case, um, I stood up a, a, a ghost blog on DigitalOcean, which, uh, by the way, is, is pretty awesome. Um, I don't know if you guys have played with it at all, but um, hmm. uh, it, it, I liked it a lot. And uh, I think you can probably do similar small, you know, little deployments in Azure um, for, for sites. Maybe, Jason, you can uh, you hook me up with that. But uh, <laughs> anyways, um, you know, out of the box... Uh, you know, they're not making decisions for you. So you really have to be uh, uh, cognizant, I guess, of what you what you want to achieve. So, you know, turn on gzip for your traffic, uh, make sure that your cache control headers are um, appropriate, and, and, and then uh, uh, confirm and test and retest and make sure that uh, that does work. So um, that's, that's probably the short version of some of my workflow. Um, what I think what uh, the, the blog series or the, the couple of articles that I've been writing of kind of reinforced for me is that it should be something that you are doing constantly and upfront because um, the you know the more debt you incur it's 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 harder to kind of move away from uh, certain decisions you make um, unless unless you're making them upfront even things um, a little more foundational like you know do you really need uh, you know all those social uh, you know sharing buttons and widgets on your page you know do you really care do you um, do you want to incur the cost of you know loading in the Facebook likes and the and the Twitter uh, buttons and all that is, is it really necessary for the type of message you're crafting right now or not? There's um, good stuff like that. Uh, lazy loading anything you can. You know, there's a lot of easy ways to do that now with uh, JavaScript mm-hmm. async, and um, it's there's, there's just there's so much that it kind of becomes uh, a laundry list after a while, and um, that's you know it's certainly part of the problem, right? It gets technical. Um, if people aren't spending time on it, you, you can you can easily just ignore it, and. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, you're right. If you're on your 100 meg line, it doesn't seem like a big deal. So again, another reason why you need to kind of get get back, get dirty a little bit, and, and go somewhere and and uh, and try and throttle your connection a little bit and get a more realistic experience. Yeah. So uh, you know, I'm kind of curious. The you know, go go in flight internet is is going to be getting faster. All everybody's connections are are, I guess, slowly getting faster. <laughs> but um, you know, is this is this getting less important or is it is it still as important as it's ever been? That's a good question. I think it's I think it's always going to be important to be honest. Um, I don't think it's be- becoming less important either. Um, it, there are there's a factoid that uh, often comes to mind that there's more people that have access um, to the internet with a with a cell phone than have a toilet and um, you know, there's this the, the growth that's occurring in Africa, Asia, um, you know, South America, elsewhere is 
is really incredible. And um, again, I think the United States is the exception in terms of or, or Europe or wherever, anywhere that's more modernized. Um, you know, we, we have some luxuries in terms of um, connection speed, but we are we're not the only class of users, right? Um, I mean, I, I don't. The U.S. is the is the land of toilets. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you know, I don't know if people are, um, you know, attempting to, uh, you know, go on the Smirnoff uh, website on, uh, you know, in Africa somewhere, which I don't think they necessarily have a responsive website. But uh, I think you understand what I'm saying. You know, like you don't, you're not trying to always go into those uh, rich media experiences from remote locations. But again, it's assumptions and. And uh, easy for me to cop out and say, yeah, it's important. Well, even me personally, I noticed that even when, you know, I do have a, a computing device that has those kind of resources, there's a lot of times I'm just really impatient. And I think I've been a lot more impatient, you know, partially being a developer and knowing that it can be better. Um you know, as we get better and better technology, I expect those websites to keep up. If I go to a site nowadays that where I see some like flash thing loading and it's taking five seconds, I, it's, gone. it's gone. I'm sorry. Yep. Yeah. Well, everybody sort of sets the bar higher. Right. Yep. And then the, the sites that are below the bar are, are obvious. Yeah, and, and I think that's yeah. a good thing. Um, it's a good thing for the industry. And, uh, you know, it's it's neat probably in general uh, to me that, uh you know, we're we're seeing the internet take shape in our lifetime, um, and and uh, we're we're actually influencing its its uh, direction and, and how it's being used and built. Um, but uh, you're right. You know, it's kind of the rising tide. Um, lift, what is it? Rising tide lifts all lifts, lifts all boats. boats yeah. You know, and uh, um, I think your expectations become higher as um, you know more people are focusing on it, and and really what that does is is um, put more pressure on those those uh lower end experiences and, and you know you, you can you see them all over the place but uh um they're not going away uh, and there's a lot of corners of the internet that uh still have a lot of opportunity yeah i was thinking we could like take a step right now to get just a little bit more technical on like these sub optimizations that we could make um the one i'd like to bring up first is image optimization okay. so um i guess maybe just quick throw this at, at you you know spreading or data uris you know what have you seen? Because I have an opinion. Okay. Well, first we should probably describe both of them, so I can I can give a quick stab at that. So a sprite is this concept of having a a single image that's actually made up of of multiple images. You know, so it's got um, it's laid out as like a grid or some other shape, and then you can uh, you basically are downloading one image. You know, so it's one request, and then you're just showing different portions of it for different locations in your page. Uh, it's a pretty good technique. And then the other one is the data URIs that you mentioned where you can do, I think it's like base 64 encoded bytes of the of the image. So you can actually include an image as text and then the browser knows how to interpret that. So go ahead, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, you know, I think that uh, it's, it's exciting, I guess, that we even have the problem in my mind that we're talking about it because that means that um, multiple solutions exist and it it means we've kind of gone past the the time of of just including every single little 32 pixel uh, image you know in in line in, in your request stack but um what i've seen work really well um is uh spriting with uh, svgs and um that allows you to get um a kind of a vector um angle to it where um you know that's going to provide you the the best um really performance uh, in terms of uh, image quality, um, for, for simple, uh, you know, little icons, I suppose. And, um, that, that works great. 
um, spriting. Uh, you know, I, I worry um, people kind of cutting up, you know, PSDs into, you know, borders and, and doing that. Um, I've, I've seen some of those and those are scary. But uh, either way, you know, I think um, there there's tools that exist that now allow you to automatically sprite or automatically encode image, images. And um, I, there's a great gr- grunt tool um, called uh, Grunt Grunticon that uh, will actually do uh, or actually take in a, uh, a directory of um, full or not, a directory of images, raster images, and it will actually sprite them in in uh, like SVG and include it right in there for you with a fall, That's with, with cool. a fallback. Um, if you want, you know, it'll detect what you what you can and cannot use, what the client can use, and and uh, it's all automated. So the 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 tooling again is is has really caught up to the cutting edge in my mind, and that's uh, extremely helpful. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like Grunt is what makes this easy because I know spriting. I've previously avoided it just because it was so much extra work. You know, you there's there's always this trade off, or I shouldn't say there's always there there used to be this trade off of developer productivity versus you know, the, the performance. So, you know, I would say, Hey, Brian, you know, please add one more image to this page. And it was like, Oh, great. I got to regenerate all my sprites. And, you know, you didn't actually say that, but you know, I assumed <laughs> that there was a whole bunch of extra work there, but now with grunt, it sounds like, you know, you just don't even think about it. You just include it. The, so you, you get the, the productivity benefits you always got, but then now you get the web performance for yeah, free. It's, it's really an investment. Um, it's, you know, it's just like setting up a continuous integration server. You know, it's, uh, Sometimes it might be hard to, you know, sell the management, I suppose, but uh, otherwise it's, uh, you know, death by a thousand cuts and, um, you know, a little bit uh, goes a long way. And it's so easy now to, um, you know, especially with like uh, resource maps, um, you know, if you're talking about like SAS or um, even minification of of JavaScript, you know, you can can still have the benefit in like a debug environment where you can see all your code um, however you want um, just to understand what's happening. And then with, um, you know, a flip of a switch, or generated right alongside is the ready to upload production quality site as well you know and um I, you know I, in preparation for this um podcast i was attempting to kind of come up with like a kind of a grunt boilerplate maybe um and th- there's a lot that exists out there but um i think that the the ecosystem is has kind of caught up to kind of like a, a unix like um environment where there's so many kind of great little tools out there that do one thing and one thing well and can all be you know kind of daisy chained together and and produce a great a great result you know you don't need a giant application necessarily that does everything um, if you can find um, a lot of little gems along the way and, and integrate them well just as important is the sort of the pieces to do that orchestration so i was you know, I was never a, a huge fan of all these little utilities, but what I'm finding now is that there's actually, you know, we have uh, really good package managers and we have, you know, all that type of tooling that's starting to make it real easy, you know, so now you can pull down grunt and, and it you can, uh, you know, pull down all these other pieces that you need and they just sort of work together out of the box. And I think that's the key. So they, you get all the advantages of, you know, some one big tool that does everything, but you can also break it up and use individual pieces. So it's really the best of everything going to just jump this backwards a bit. And I said, you know, the question that I originally asked you was a little bit loaded because we're getting to the technologies. Really, the to me, the answer is just understanding that these um, technologies exist of spriting and of data URIs. Um, I had a colleague come up to me uh, uh, almost a year ago, not quite. And he asked me, what's the best way to do spriting? And I proposed to him, hey, what about data URIs? 
somebody sitting next to me was like, whoa, 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 spreading all the way. And we were kind of each had our own, cha- <laughs> you know, championed each side. Right. So what, what we had done is we actually implemented both and did as, as, as well, good of a testing as we could do. And, and to be honest, in the scenarios that, you know, how we created it and were testing, they were pretty close. Yeah. One edged out slightly. I mean, we're talking milliseconds here consistently. And, but the thing is being aware that these technologies exist, these tools exist and how to use them. It's just, to me, this is just education. Knowing that Grunt can do this and can automate all that for you is even better. Yeah. I think the the big difference between the spriting and the data URIs is uh, caching, right? Because I don't think a browser will cache those data URIs. They're going to get sent down They're gonna be, every time. Yeah. They both solve the problem of removing the requests, the additional requests. And you, you do have to understand things like uh, uh, we were talking last week with Mads about like fi- fingerprinting cache content as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of things that come into this, but it's kind of having a lot of little pieces of information. Yeah, you have to be careful. I think, uh, you know, I've, you don't, I don't think you want to include every single image in the, as a data URI. You're just you're asking for, for trouble. I mean, that that will just physically mm-hmm. in, increase the amount of bytes that you're delivering. Right. Um, but uh, it's it's all kind of, you know, uh, time and dosage and, and understanding when to you yeah. when to use a, a solution, like you said before. And don't forget about the extra dimension. I mean, what a lot of people do is they, you know, you, you, you modify your page and then you, you fire up the Chrome developer tools or the IEF 12 tools now, and you, you look at the timings in there and the, the, you know, the size of everything and you say, Oh, this one wins. Well, no, you're, you're forgetting a dimension, which that dimension is the fact that a user goes from page to page, right? So if you want to optimize for the entire experience, then, you know, then the um, the sprites start to have an advantage there. I don't know if that overcomes any advantage that the data URIs would have. But, um, you know, you just you have to think a little bit more dimensionally about the user right, experience. Right. And, and if we're talking, um, you know, icons, which is kind of a, a reductive example, I suppose. You know, there's also, um, you know, icon fonts now, which are really taken off. There's a lot of sweet tools out there that allow you to, you know, create your own icon fonts. Um, and they have some accessibility concerns that you, you need to mitigate, I suppose. Um, you're know, worrying about screen readers, how they'll how they'll tackle them. Um, you're kind of maybe writing over some of the um, the uh, you know other entities that you might be using for a font. A font. But um, th- that's also kind of a third contender. And um, the answer, all of them is all of them win in my mind. Uh, you know, if you're uh, even just worrying about it in, in general, you're you're going to find a performance solution. Now, speaking of winning, I mean, I, another thing that we haven't talked about coming. Uh, talking about image optimization is what what does our choice of image file types have on performance and you know are there certain cases where certain file types make more sense such as png jpeg or the other one which i'm not going to start the pronunciation <laughs> war on um yeah i think i think that there's a little bit more clear-cut answers um for um for image type um in my mind uh, you know, if you need something with any kind of alpha transparency, you're going to go with PNG. Um, it, it's just, it, it's the best. Um, it's the, I don't think even JPEG supports transparency, if I recall. Um, so, you, you know, that's kind of hands down, that's what you need. Um, you know, I've, uh, JPEGs I've always used more for um, things that are more kind of photo-esque, or, you know, photo quality. Um, and that really allows you to kind of play around with, um, you know, differing levels of quality depending on you know, the size of the image. You can sometimes get really, really, afford, you know, you can get away with being kind of grainy and, and being a little lossy. Um, and, and that's fine, um, depending on your context. 
uh, and and that works. That, there's no problem with that. Uh, another, you know, the the GIF or GIF or whatever you want to say. I guess. Oh no! I started it. Uh, <laughs> what you know? Those. I guess I don't know how how frankly how often people really use those. I suppose, but um, a lot of the a lot of those that I've ever done, I, I've started base encoding those um, if they're not animated. Usually, my GIFs are tiny, tiny, tiny. Okay. So how does compressing your image, like, you know, how, do you do that um, personally? And then if you do, do you kind of do that by hand with, with a tool? <laughs> by or, hand. Or, like yeah, Chuck do, Norris. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> sure. Or, 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 or do you build that into, like, last week Mads was talking about uh, using an Azure site extension to do that automatically for him. I'm sure there's something uh, with Grunt that they probably have similar tooling as there well. There is, yes. So I'm, I'll sound like a broken record, I suppose. Um, there is a grunt tool called um, ImageMin that will actually optimize JPEGs, uh, PNGs, GIFs, um, all in there. And I think I gave you, I'll give you guys that uh, for the show notes too. Um, uh, a link to uh, kind of a short list of tools that I've, I've found. But um, you know, there's a lot of good. Um, Kind of standalone tools that will will do it as well. You don't always need to incorporate something like this into a workflow necessarily, right? Um, I mean, how often does an image really change over the course of development? Um, you know, marketing might bring give you a new one, or creative services will will give you a new new image to swap in and out. But it's not like you're changing them as fast as you're changing some CSS and some uh, you know any other content. So to me, uh, it feels like a little bit of overkill, I guess, to really automate some of that. Um, but it is nice to know that you don't necessarily have to. Do do by hand if you don't want to. So that's kind of a, a nice thing. Um, you know, one thing that uh, we haven't really mentioned yet either um, are actually some new new uh, fronts or, or frontiers, I guess, in in really image delivery um, in, in, in on the web. And yeah, I'm talking mostly about the picture element, uh, as you guys might might know a little bit about. Um, I'm a member of the Responsive Images community, community group that uh, actually kind of helped draft that specification and then. Uh, um, some super smart guys actually, you know, championed it, um, you know, uh, on the WebKit team, and uh, and I think Opera has it too, and so does Mozilla. Um, I think uh, it's under consideration for IE 11, but really um, that solves a lot of neat use cases. It's very similar to the video element in HTML5, where um, you know you can swap uh, different sources based on essentially a media query, and um, the spec has evolved a little bit. Um, since it was first uh, first really proposed, but um, it also incorporates some of the source set and and sizes attributes for uh, for images as well. So it kind of creates this um, new really kind of go to perfect storm of of image solutions that um, allow a developer to uh, you know really uh, serve up the the exact perfect image for the for the user uh, whenever they need it and. It creates a whole slew of other problems in terms of you know making sure you have the right files and, and uh, auto generating a bunch of different um, image files you know, on the server I guess um, to support you know various viewports or, or uh, device pixel ratios things like that but um, that's another great way to really uh, improve the quality of your images is to, to make sure you're delivering you know, the one they need and only that one. Cool. So we've talked about images. Let's talk about JavaScript. So you talked about this earlier, having, you know, sort of your, your, uh, you know, raw JavaScript file and then grunt at for production time, generating the, the minified version. And then the server could be G zipping that as well. Is there, is there ever a risk in that thing, you know, mangling it? I, I always have that fear whenever 
you know, I just push a button and now it's in production. But the, the thing that I've been testing locally is completely different than what I have in production. Sure. Yeah, I think that's a valid fear. Um, and it's it's hard, too, because um, you can't necessarily uh, look at the code and tell you, yep, that's right. You know, all my variables are the same. Uh, you know, all my declarations look the same, all my functions, whatever. Um, the, the act of minification and, and, and I guess if you want to obfuscate, too, it really destroys all legibility. But um, I think there's a lot of good tools out there that can help you understand if it is still working. You know, obviously having some decent uh, test coverage of your JavaScript, if if possible, can help mitigate that fear. Because if if your code, if your code passes in, in in dev and then it passes it, you know, when it's uh, compressed, you can reasonably assume that it's doing the exact same thing. Um, if uh, you know, if you have decent coverage, but um, I, you know, with that said, I, I have seen instances where um, kind of overzealous minification has just utterly destroyed. Uh, yeah, a, I was going to ask model. you if you ever saw it, and and um, you, you have you have to understand when when and I don't know, just like anything I've been saying, I guess you need to choose when you want to do it. You know, if uh, you can rest assured that the minified version of jQuery is probably pretty stable. Right. You know, uh, no one's saying to, to go crazy and use a dev version or anything. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, make sure that you're testing everything you, you're using. And uh, there's cool tools that uh, will allow you to maintain, you know, the status of a variable. If you are worried about it, uh, you know, being globally namespaced and being referenced somewhere else, you know, there's there's some opportunities like that um, where you can say, hey, don't touch jQuery. Don't touch, you know, foo. Um, and, and that won't get, uh, minified and that, that helps as well. Okay. Great. Um, let's move on to CSS optimization. Um, the, the one thing that I always try to emphasize to people is kind of also lends a little bit to JavaScript is knowing when to put something in CSS versus JavaScript, because, um, especially on mobile devices, you can enhance performance because CSS will get GPU optimized when you're using like a lot of the animates or transforms. Right. Whereas if you do that in JavaScript, you won't. Do you have any other similar um, tips for CSS other than, you know, the stuff that we've talked about, like minimization? Sure. Uh, good question. I, I, and I think you're right. Um, you know, that the, the poster child to me for, um, you know, moving things to CSS, like CSS3 transitions would be like the off canvas menu switching. You, you've probably seen that pattern on, on mobile devices and sometimes desktop uh, navigation too, where, you know, you click the little hamburger uh, menu icon and uh, um, the whole screen will shift to the right. You know, it's a very, or left, it's very similar to like a Facebook app style navigation. Um, you can definitely optimize that uh, by using the GPU, like you said. Um, versus you know something scary like a like a, um, a jQuery call. Um, other examples where um, where where that's possible um, would be like hover states. So um, I've seen I've seen some scary stuff over the years where people just maybe not maybe they just don't know better about um, you know p- baking logic into JavaScript or, or present presentation logic into JavaScript on on hover or on mouse over and uh, you know that's that's what CSS hover declarations do. You know, there's no reason not to do that. Um, you know, from time to time, you can, if you follow, um, you know, CodePen, um, which is a, a really, really neat uh, tool to um, play around and demo um, your different front-end technologies, um, you can, you'll find someone who's implemented XYZ just with CSS and um, and, and by, by moving a whole lot of behavior um, into uh, focus elements and, and uh, hover elements. So you can probably go crazy with it a little bit too much, but... But um, 
uh, I guess I would say that's probably the mark of a, a an untrained uh, developer is to rely too much on uh, JavaScript or really any one technology, and, and it's all of our responsibilities to to help them out when uh, you see something that might be a little better. Yeah, uh, another. Yeah, at least pitfall I've kind of run into myself is, you know, I'm a big fan of using CSS preprocessors like SAS and less. Um, I know one of the the huge pitfalls that I've run into is it's really easy to just keep nesting child objects and failing to realize that when that gets generated, they're going to just generate these really uh, long, you know, you know, class name, you know, you know, what it tries to match. Yeah, you know, the, like, the selectors get you know, crazy. And- yeah, the, the, the selectors. And to me, I mean, that's something that's using those things, which are supposed to help us can really kind of hurt us there. Yeah. Is there any, any other experience you've had with that? Um, well, I think you're right in general. Um, that, that's a, a very easy thing to do. Um, and, and it looks good in SAS and it looks terrible in CSS. And, and um, I think the, the pitfall that I'd probably uh, mention is that people need to understand the underlying technology before they try something that's that's you know uh, upstream of that. It's a, a similar uh, uh, concept with JavaScript and CoffeeScript, right? Where yeah, I might uh, optimize you know, some code writing and then be a little cleaner, I guess, quote unquote cleaner. But you can write some terrible CoffeeScript or TypeScript, you know, that compiles down to JavaScript, um, just like you can write terrible JavaScript. So. Uh, the, the SAS um, uh, tools and the, the family of those tools is, is great, but you need to understand um, how to use them. Uh, there's, there's good frameworks out there like um, B, uh, BEM or BEM and um, object-oriented CSS that attempt to uh, you know really write modular CSS and, and extensible CSS and not uh, not have something that's so god awful uh, specific that it's unusable because you nested it five times and, and now your your H1 declaration for your masthead you know can't be used anywhere else um, all your links whatever um, whatever you want to say uh, it's too easy to do and you need to um, remind yourself constantly that that's not a good pattern uh, and should only be used for um, extreme circumstances I guess. Now there's also a, a class of optimizations that you know kind of fall on you know to once again both CSS and JavaScript and a few other things that I would just put under like file optimization. Uh-huh. So um, now this is something I've seen a lot of tooling for. I know Visual uh, Studio supports this, and I know that there's um, things for Grunt as well. But combining uh, into a minimal amount of files, if not one, uh, can you tell us a little bit more of what can happen with that? Both you know what that gets you and you know you know once again we've been talking about pitfalls sure sure well um the the most expensive uh i guess transaction or, or action in in um you know client server relationship is just the network connections and hops so um i guess in general um avoiding as many as possible is is almost always a good idea um there, there's I've seen some benchmarking that sometimes is contradictive of that fact, but um, you know, wherever you can possibly remove um, another another download, it's it's almost always a good thing. And uh, an easy easy way to do that is by uh, concatenating um, JavaScript files. Uh, you know, if you think to um, a lot of the libraries you see, um, they're very often you know standalone. Um, there's you know they're self-contained. Um, they're defensively programmed, so um, you know they have their own namespace and they make sure that uh, 
you know, jQuery is jQuery and undefined is undefined and so forth. Um, so, you know, there's no reason for them to really be uh, isolated in their own file um, if if they are constructed correctly. So um, it, it's uh, rather simple with Grunt and, and, and other tools, like you said, um, to concatenate your files and, um, you know, make sure that I suppose the ordering is correct. Um, if if uh, there are any kind of dependencies you would have to worry about, but um by by you know gluing everything together, you can uh, pretty simply um, you know reduce your your amount of uh, um, uh, hits, I guess, to the server. Well, it's it's essentially the same thing as spriting for images, right? Yep. So spriting is to images as you know concatenating is to JavaScript yep, files. And, and I mean, uh, you can concatenate CSS as well. Um, it's mm-hmm. uh, one thing I, I I just noticed the other day on on my crunchyol.com site is that um, you know I had a I had a, a normalized CSS file um, that I was importing uh, right before um, my site, my site CSS, and um, it's easy to do that, um, but uh, it's not the right thing because I'm now I'm pulling down two files, and you know the question is why? There's no good reason to be doing that. Um, CSS is by nature, you know, processed um, kind of linearly, linearly, and uh, you know, they should just be included in the same file. And uh, that's what I did. And, uh, you know, every little bit helps. Um, the the comment I made is that, um, you know, with, with the, the beautiful mosaic that the web is, um, it, there are a ton of standalone components out there, but it, and it's, it's so easy to just kind of keep including little things here and there. But uh, that kind of quick decision will, will can add up to a, a slower experience. Okay. Uh, one more thing I want to talk about was why uh, slow uh-huh. from Yahoo. <clears throat> so I, um, you know, a few years ago, I remember whenever this first came out. So they, they, uh, they had a study, you know, they, they revamped their, you know, Yahoo revamped their website and they came up with all these kind of uh, core decisions around how to um, design the site so that they could get really good performance. And that included things like spriting, um, but it also included things like, um, E tags and, and things like that. And at the time, I mean, it was, it was like the place to go to figure out how to optimize sites. And they, you know, whenever they did all these optimizations, their site was incredibly fast at the time. And then they also released a tool called Y slow, and it would let you go through and actually test, you know, it would automatically, it was, it's a browser extension that would automatically test your site for a lot of their, um, you know, their designed or their decisions that, that they've actually benchmarked, you know, their rules of thumb. Right. So I, I guess I'm curious, like, are all those things still relevant? And is that tool still relevant? What What's kind of the state of that? Sure, that's a good question. Um, and there's a lot of them. And another great one is um, Google Page uh, Speed Insights, I think it's called. And um, okay. that one uh, is very similar to YSlow, where um, it has a lot of best practices, um, you know, things we talked about already. You know, it, it'll it'll actually inspect your your uh, website and tell you, hey, gzipping is not on. You should probably do that, right? Um, and and uh, it so forth for for mobile and desktop experiences. But um, what I've what I've seen sometimes is that. Uh, and you, you can't rely on on them 100%. You know, if you got a good score on uh, on webpage uh, test.org that says that your speed index is you know 850, you know who cares? Um, I, to some extent, um, if uh, you you test on your you know old uh, iPod Touch and it's still really really slow, and you need that, and you need that experience. So I think um, I've seen some instances, I guess, where the, I guess the the um, the recommendations are almost contradictory uh, to an extent. 
And uh, you just, you as a developer need to understand that they're recommendations and sometimes they don't always make sense. Um, like current challenge I have um, with my ghost blog and, and I might just be naive as to how to do this uh, yet is um, they, the, uh, the templates are not HTML. So I can't easily minify them because it's done, it's done in ghost somewhere. It's done in node. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and I could probably crack it open and, and remove some, some new lines or something, but, uh, you know, it's going to get hit, it's going to get dinged every single time by the automated tools because the HTML isn't minified. And in this case, um, I don't really care because that's such a small fraction of the, of the, uh, the, the total bytes, um, delivered that it doesn't matter to me right now. There's, there's lower hanging fruit like image optimization, like, uh, JavaScript concatenation, gzipping. I mean, the number one thing, right? You know, so caching. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of other things to do. So, you know, if you're, if you're dinged on one thing, I wouldn't worry about it. But, uh, in general, um, the tools out there are pretty good at, uh, you know, telling you, uh, you know, sensible recommendations, and then you have to determine what you want to do about it. Yeah, I'm kind of looking through the the list here. I see 23 different items that are testable. It looks like there's 34 rules that that Yahoo came up with. So, you know, I don't want to dive into each one, but they have um, minimize HTTP requests. That one sort of seems obvious. Uh, use a content delivery network or CDN. So on the show, we've talked about that before. There's a there's a number of CDNs you can use, and right. it's actually pretty easy to do this. Put, put all your JavaScript, CSS, your images, put those on a CDN so that they're, they're served separately. But, you know, to your point about some of these being, um, you know, sort of opposite of each other. So it says use a CDN, but then lower down, it says, uh, where was it here? It said, uh, um, minify or, or uh, avoid DNS lookups. So of course, every time you, you know, use a CDN, right. you're going to have another DNS lookup. So you, you sort of have to, you know, balance those things. Um, there's also avoid empty source or href, add an expires or cache control header, uh, gzip components. We've talked about that one a lot. Put style sheets at top, put scripts at bottom. And even some of these, I think, you know, there's, there's even more, there's more complexity these days. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's um, a ton of complexity now. I mean, you said it just now put t- style sheets at yeah. the top, you know? Yeah. That's, that's the general idea. But then, um, you know, now uh, I was mentioning that penthouse tool where it says, hey, well, well, wait, why don't you inline your above the fold content? You know, so then you're putting CSS uh, right in the HTML. Um, and then it would, by that logic, then you could put the CSS, you know, asynchronously anywhere in, in a way. And uh, it's kind of a constantly moving target. Um, just like a lot of things in, in you know, the quote unquote industry are, I suppose. And, um I guess the way I feel about it is that there's probably always going to be, like, you know, something else you can do to make it better, right? And mm-hmm. if if, uh, if this podcast helps anyone in in kind of taking the next step and 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 setting aside some time just to focus on this, you know, they're going to be better off. And and at the out at the end of that exercise, they're probably going to find five more things they could do, you know, um, for the next set of time they have, um, where, uh, like, after my first article, um, I noticed that um, Nginx and, and Ghost were still caching things a little goofily, like, uh, on, like, a 30-minute timer or something, and I don't write that often that I need, you know, I needed that that low, so, you know, you kind of add it on the, on the bucket list, and, and you keep going from there, put it on the backlog. Yep. So uh, just going through the rest of these, avoid CSS expressions, which we said, you know, is might be okay. Uh, make JavaScript and CSS external, uh, reduce DNS lookups. We mentioned that one. Minify JavaScript and CSS. We talked about that. Avoid redirects. 
uh, remove duplicate scripts, uh, configure e-tags, make Ajax cacheable, use get for Ajax requests, reduce the number of DOM elements, no 404s, uh, reduce cookie size, uh, use cookie-free domains for components. So like, you know, CDN would be cookie-free uh, typically. Uh, avoid filters, do not scale images in HTML. I think that one comes from the, you know, people using gigantic images and then just using HTML to resize them instead of a tool. Right. And then uh, make favicon or however you pronounce that dot ICO small and cacheable. And actually that, that image scaling, that one's kind of interesting. We didn't talk about that because, uh, you know, you talked about the new picture format, but you know, handling high DPI or retina style graphics and the way that, um, uh, one thing that I read a while back is, you know, was talking about some ways to handle this. And it's honestly, a lot of different ways are are huge pain. But one of the points that they made was you can actually, if it's a JPEG, you can, you can just crank up the, the compression so you can get, you know, a smaller image file size. And when it does get scaled in the HTML, it will actually look fine for somebody who has a non-high DPI display. And for somebody who has a high DPI display, their pixels are going to be smaller anyway. So, you know, they're not going to see the JPEG compression. So I thought that one was kind of interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it, you know, that I, I clicked in into that Y slow and I, I looked um, at the details and it's, to me, it's reductive to say, don't use an image bigger than the one you need because, you know, who is you? Uh, it, you know, it's, it's so hard, um, as you, as you say, to understand who's going to be uh, hitting your site and you need to make all those decisions kind of along the way. Right. So I think it's worth looking at these rules, but don't don't you know, don't treat them as law. Right. Is there anything else that we missed that you want, wanted to make sure you talked about or do we cover it pretty well? Um, you know, I think that uh, we got we got kind of some broad brushstrokes on uh, some of the technical things, uh, which is great. But um, I, I think that uh, even before you dive into a space like that, I think it's helpful to consider really just what you're delivering in terms of content um, even beforehand and and asking yourself is it really needed or not um, I think the the anecdote that I if I recall it correctly is uh, a very very early version of uh, Facebook's mobile um, a mobile app or, or website, I suppose, um, uh, didn't even have like a register or a uh, forgot password link on, on its login screen because they assumed that anyone going there, um, you know, knew it, knew their uh, information or, or was already a member, you know, and uh, you need to, in this new landscape uh, with you know, constantly emerging devices, you really need to uh, consider uh, as much as you possibly can, you know, the the uh, different ways someone might be interacting with your content. There's a, there's actually, um, I'm curious if it's still up, a, a really good example of um, just some some lazy loading, uh, good old performance enhancement, right, or progressive enhancement um, mm-hmm. on uh, thebostonglobe.com. Um, I showed you guys that uh, years ago, um, where if you load up the Boston Globe, um, it's going to show you what the weather is in the kind of like in the top left corner. And yeah, it has some fancy responsive stuff if you kind of make it go, get bigger and smaller. But um, if you click through um, to the to the weather, um, it'll actually load up kind of a bigger um, weather strip, I suppose, uh, of the weather for the week. And that that's really um, a, a kind of a separate piece of HTML that they're uh, you know, they're delivering elsewhere. It's, it has its own dedicated page. If if you find it, you can get to it. But um, you know they're they're loading it uh, you know asynchronously um, as the user opts into more information. So when when you're talking about content strategy, uh, you know consider 
the task at hand and what what information can and cannot be delivered after the fact. Okay. Um, so let's go move on to the Azure pick of the week. So here I have uh, a blog post by a colleague of mine that is called My Personal Azure FAQ, so Frequently Asked Questions on Azure Networking, SLAs, Bandwidth, Latency, Performance, uh, SLB, DNS, DMZ, VNet, IPv6, and much more. So this is um, this is just a, a really big set of questions that that he gets often, and I actually get these same questions often on Azure. So I recommend checking this out. We'll include a, a, a link in the show notes. I'm not going to go through everything, every single thing on here, but it's talking about different, uh, you know, SLAs and and latency between uh, different configurations of virtual machines. So you know, if you're building an Azure application and you know you're getting into networking and load balancing and those types of things, which if you're you know if it's a it's sort of a true cloud application, you should. Um, definitely take a look at this because this is, you know, he's speaking out of experience on this. And then Carl, what do we have for the app of the week? Now, before I, I disclose what this is, I, I chose this exactly just for you, Jason. I know that you've been um, playing around with the Nokia Sensor Core SDK. Yep. And so for people who aren't familiar with this, this taps in in a lower power way um, to access like how active you are. So it can tell your steps and there, there's a bunch more information that you can grab for this, but it does it in a smart way. It's always running. And um, to a point, it's also only available on some of the newer devices as well. But in response to Jason exploring this, I found a game out there that uses the Sensor Core SDK and it's called Run Rabbit Run. And the point is, is you are always going to have your phone on with you. Like we talked earlier, you know, it's, you know, our wallet, our phones, those are the things that we carry on us all the time now. And as you are more active, your rabbit, you pick a rabbit at the beginning of this game, your rabbit gets more fit. Or if you're kind of sit around all day, it gets fatter. This is awesome. (laughs) And you, as you, as you exercise or, you know, become more active, you can earn carrots for your cat and, or for your rabbit and, um, you know, up upgrade the clothes and other options. It's it's one of those ways to gamify you to be more active with an actual game. This is awesome. I see that you, yeah, you can you can use steps to purchase items in the game. <laughs> oh wow, this is awesome. This needs to get integrated in Age of Empires because I would be <laughs> I would be just walking all day. This is really, really cool. So I, w- I was hoping you'd have that reaction, Jason. Yeah, this is really cool. Thanks, Carl. Yeah, the, the Sensor Core SDK is really awesome because like it's it's already it, it, you you go in it's an opt in thing but you can go in there if you write an app that that you know has permission to read the sensor core data it can just say hey 3 hours ago from you know this time to this time how many steps did they take what what were they doing like all that data is is stored in there it's really cool the the information the phone has is amazing so really unlocks these cool applications and like i mentioned next or last week uh, i'm working on an app that uh, you know uses the sensor core mine's going to be pretty cool I've been uh, I've been using it a lot. So anyway, moving on. Um, so I am. Uh, you can find me at ytechie.com. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. Brian, where can we find you? You can find me probably best uh, on Twitter at uh, b munzenmeyer. Uh, the last name is a mouthful, so um, uh, pretty much the only one out there. But uh, uh, you can also <laughs> find me at brianmunzenmeyer.com. Um, where I, I write occasionally. And uh, you also find my professional work at crunchyowl.com, uh, currently accepting uh, clients if uh, anyone's interested. So um, it's mostly me. I'm also on GitHub. Perfect. What about you, Carl? Yeah, you can um, find me at wpdevguy.com or on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And be sure to su- subscribe to the show by searching for MS Dev Show in your favorite podcasting app. Uh, also visit 
us at msdevshow.com where you can leave comments and you can check out our links and show notes. Uh, if you have comments, send them and feedback to feedback at msdevshow.com. Be sure to leave us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast aggregator of choice. So, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. It was an awesome time talking to you. Thank you. Very much appreciated. Thank you.